It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Hello, my name is Sharon Kirsch, and I'm the author of two books of creative nonfiction, both of them published by New Star Books Vancouver. The first, What Species of Creatures, explored first encounters between early Europeans in Canada and the unfamiliar animals they found upon their arrival, creatures like chipmunks, polar bears, and hummingbirds that were unknown to the French and British. My recently published book, The Smallest Objective, is the one I'll be talking about in the next minutes. The Canadian book site, 49th Shelf, chose this memoir as one of five significant books about Alzheimer's. Journalist Robin Fadden included it alongside the apprenticeship of Judy Kravitz in her list of 15 best-ever titles about the real Montreal. And the Miramichi reader chose the smallest objective as its honorary title for Jewish Book Month. These three distinctions point to several of the foremost themes and subject areas of my memoir, Montreal and its History, Jewish Immigration, Alzheimer's, and Dementia. Also essential to the smallest objective is a mother-daughter relationship and the quest for a hidden treasure. Much of the narrative takes place in Cote St. Luke, where I grew up in the 1960s and 70s. I like to call the smallest objective a lost and found story because it begins with a search for buried treasure. As the book opens, I'm moving my mother from the family home of 50 years to an assisted living facility. It's a traumatic move for both of us, but unavoidable because my mother has developed dementia. Too often she laments, I don't know what I'm doing, and she can no longer recall vital elements of her own history. The impulse for me to write The Smallest Objective began with this gradual disappearance of my mother as a familiar person. I felt compelled to construct or reconstruct memories in response to my mother's failure of memory, and this eventually led me to ponder the inverse phenomenon of willed forgetfulness, an experience shared by most families as some ancestors or traumas are edited out of the family history. To return to the storyline, as an only child, I was entrusted with the responsibility for my mother's well-being, along with the sale of her house. I was mindful, too, of a directive my father gave me before his death a decade earlier. Specifically, he instructed me to undertake a search for a treasure he'd buried in the family home as it was being built. He was clear also about what I'd need to recover the hidden stash, a metal detector. As it turned out, the metal detector I got hold of responded to each of hundreds of nails on the wooden floorboards, and it quickly became apparent that more professional expertise would be required. I imagine you may be wondering why my father would have buried a treasure in the family home. If we consider my father's wartime experience, his action begins to appear less eccentric. As a physician and medical officer, my father traveled overseas with the regiment the Queen's Own Rifles in the Second World War and participated in the Normandy landing on D-Day. As some of you will be aware, it wasn't unusual in wartime for people to bury coins or other valuables in case of looting or invasion. I believe my father brought this wartime habit back to Montreal, securing valuables he could draw upon if he ever needed to fend for his young wife. Perhaps he was imagining, too, prospects for his unborn children. As it turned out, I was to be the only one. My mother was an intensely anxious person who imposed a strict etiquette within her house. From early childhood, I understood that I was neither to disturb nor sully the perfect order she had created. Excavating for treasure in my mother's house, then, would necessarily violate these norms and betray her trust in me. Yet the treasure began to take the form of a last message from my father that I desperately needed to recover as my mother herself was slipping away. 
To help out, an archaeologist friend offered me a team of two professional excavators and a ground-penetrating radar device that detects near-surface objects. Here the story takes some amusing twists and turns involving a galette des rois, the cake with a hidden treasure, a master carpenter, and much splintered wood. I won't give away whether I eventually recovered my father's treasure. I will say that the story becomes one of loss and retrieval in a broader sense as I was sorting through objects in my mother's house, many of them associated with family members I knew little or not at all. In this way, several lives are revealed, each one quite dramatic, and each offering a vantage point on 20th century Montreal and its Jewish community in particular. Soon I'll be introducing you to these Montreal personalities. First, though, I should say a few words about my title, The Smallest Objective. Among the many remarkable and unfamiliar items that I retrieved from my parents' basement was my paternal grandfather's jug-handle microscope dating from 1919-1920. Indeed, a photograph of this microscope appears in the frontispiece of my book. Dr. Simon Kirsch, my grandfather, taught botany at McGill University, and his microscope includes several objective lenses. The smallest of these allows for the highest degree of magnification, hence the title. For Simon, this smallest lens was a means of viewing plant and tree sections, especially ferns and conifers, enlarged to the cellular level. For me, the smallest objective became a metaphor for the close-up examination of lost family and forgotten objects so central to my book. The title carries, too, a secondary meaning, The Humblest Quest. As the narrator of this memoir, I'm searching for so many things, buried treasure, the stories told by objects, a family's discarded past, and perhaps ultimately for home, whether as a physical place or a fulfillment of identity. As I prepare to leave my mother's house for the final time, I reflect in the book on what these finds mean to me, and here's the following short passage. I wouldn't be leaving behind the objects I'd retrieve from this house, nor the people who'd laid claim to them with tenderness and vied to keep them safe. The awareness of my hidden ancestors, brought about through their possessions, was beginning to furnish me with another kind of home. In my mother's final years, she possessed a home in the simplest, most concrete meaning of the term, but failed to understand where she was. In turn, I was developing a more intangible base from which I could orient myself. I looked to my lost family, the way all of us do, to distant stars, which, although not identical to us in composition, share many of the same elements. Let me introduce you now to some of the personalities in the book. As a young man, my paternal grandfather, Dr. Simon Kirsch, referred to himself as one of nature's living jokes. Yet if he had remained in his native country of Lithuania, he very likely would not have survived World War II, when almost all of Lithuanian Jewry was exterminated. Instead, Simon led an energetic life in Montreal, contributing to and helping to establish some of the city's most beloved institutions, and we'll get to those in a moment. Simon's family managed to immigrate to Montreal in 1890 when he was six years old. A native Yiddish speaker and the son of a Montreal peddler, he excelled at school. Many Jews in his native town of Vilkomir had worked as woodcutters or dealers in wood, and Simon himself would have played in the woods of spruce, larch, and pine surrounding his town. Not by accident, then, he enrolled in the botany program at McGill, becoming in 1910 one of the very first Jewish students to earn a PhD there. Simon set another important precedent by being admitted as one of the first Jewish faculty members at McGill at a time when Jewish representation at universities was well under 1% for faculty and staff. The relics from this era of Simon's life led me to think about the grandfather who never knew of my existence. As the only one of his grandchildren to be born after his death, I became, accidentally, the curator of his belongings. 
his jug handle microscope, and his lantern slides. These latter are positive images overlaid with a glass cover and meant to reveal themselves fully by means of a magic lantern, a wooden box with a flame chamber. In this instance, they depict mostly plants at the cellular level. There were, as well, the minerals Simon prospected for in the summer months, sodalite, sheet metal, and fool's gold. By the early 1920s, Simon had become a founder and the second president of Camp Bene Brith in the Laurentians, which still exists to this day. In 1925, he left McGill to become a developer of land. During the next years, he single-handedly chose the site for the Jewish General Hospital, now such an important center for battling COVID, and served on the building committee and as a director of the Mount Sinai Sanatorium in Prefontaine, the Laurentians. The successor of that sanatorium, as many of you will know, is the esteemed Mount Sinai Hospital in Cote St. Luke. Simon also left a further significant built legacy, one that I'll leave you to discover if you choose to read The Smallest Objective. Carol Rutenberg Silver, my mother's sister and only sibling, is another of the missing family members discovered in this book. Daring and ambitious, a horsewoman and a water skier, she graduated at the top of her class in McGill's physiotherapy program. I'm going to read a scene now from Carol's graduation and then share more about her too short life. And I'll just take a moment here to turn to the page in the book. This little reading begins with my mother, who herself had been a student at McGill before her sister. My mother herself was well-versed in the essentials of life, having briefly studied first-year biological sciences at McGill before defecting to the School for Teachers at MacDonald College. During her foray as a scientist, she had excelled in the law of moments and composition of forces, but faltered at the dissection table, where a live fish bolted from her grasp. Ultimately, she demonstrated neither the skill nor the academic resolve of her younger sister, also eventually a student of anatomy and the life sciences. Carol's graduation ceremony in May 1958 marked a return for the older sister to the university to which she'd been admitted seven years earlier. To qualify for their diploma in physical therapy, my aunt and her classmates had mastered electrotherapy, botany, and zoology, and basic conditions. They were to become practitioners of the movement sciences. The blue and yellow graduation hoods worn in their discipline evoked the male yellow-crowned euphonia, a neotropical bird of dry scrub, and would soon be exchanged for whites. In their heavily starched uniforms with autonomous buttons that had to be attached like cufflinks, the young women practitioners were close to immobilized. At her sister's graduation, my mother sat beside her mother-in-law, who sat in turn beside my mother's mother, each sporting an oversized bow or hat. Carol was presented with a book prize, Cunningham's Textbook of Anatomy, for her first place finish in the physiotherapy program. At the conclusion of a ceremony on the central lawn of McGill University, her all-female class of graduates sang God Save the Queen. I have several relics from that day in May, when tents and folding chairs obscured the central playing field of the university, and the wind lifted the hem of my aunt's graduation gown, exposing her white pencil skirt beneath. The item that weighs most is Cunningham's. Its photos and diagrams represent the connective tissues, bones, and organs that lie just beneath the skin, vermiform appendix, cranial landmarks, and arachnoid mater. The single item that weighs least is a double-eight film in its original box of school bus orange. I've viewed the several minutes of footage perhaps a dozen times, and always I note my errors of memory or failures of perception from the prior screening, a confusion as basic as whether in the first moments my mother's younger sister is approaching or returning from the podium, 
she's returning, and whether at any time she holds the book prize in her hands, she doesn't. There are discontinuities, so Carol's receiving of her diploma is missing. Only the lead-up and the aftermath are recorded. Her lips move throughout, but produce no sound. Inarguably, she is self-possessed, resolute, qualities evident from the still photographs of the same occasion. Where the short film overtakes the photos is in elucidating the purposefulness and vigor of Carol's stride, the lilt of her shoulders as she walks in dark pumps, her smile and easy change of direction when she opts for a wrong turn upon stepping down from the podium. The final remnant of Carol's graduation is her diploma encased in a red cardboard tube. On graduation day, this item, once awarded, seemingly never left her hands. When her mother, my grandmother, suggests relieving her of it, Carol shakes her head, no. Eventually, the diploma came to me, not by intent, but because for decades it had lain undisturbed in my grandmother's faux leather suitcase, first in her apartment and then in my mother's basement. I can tell you that it has the pleasing heft of a dog's bone and, like old fur, smells musty. We'll return now to Carol's life. She was a second-generation Canadian, born in 1938 into an extended family with grandparents from Lithuania and the Ukraine. When Carol came of age in the 1950s, Montreal was a place of growing affluence and increasing acceptance of Jews. Opportunities for women, too, were improving. I have just several memories of my aunt before her sudden untimely death in 1965, age 26, for medical reasons that remain uncertain. Most of these memories, not surprisingly for a toddler, involve chocolate. My mother rarely spoke of her sister, and it was only when sorting through the family items in my mother's basement that I recovered my aunt's belongings. Before her marriage in 1960, Carol and her best friend had spent time in Mexico. The few postcards Carol sent to her sister, my mother, from that trip suggest a young woman enthralled by her adventures. Sorry I haven't written more often, but we've been so busy running around. Needless to say, we are having an absolute ball, she wrote to her older sister. We have met dolls wherever we go. This particular postcard, a photograph of the fishermen of Lake Patsquaro with their butterfly nets, is dated December 15, 1959. I recovered, as well, Carol's recipe book, A Treasure for My Daughter, a gift from her mother. Published in 1950, the book was a charitable venture, its purpose to safeguard the traditions of Jewish home life after the Holocaust, its proceeds to rehabilitate Jewish war victims. The recipes were very much of the era, roast capon with cornflake stuffing, Concord grape jelly, Turkish delight roll. Carol cooked from the book, but didn't necessarily adhere to its prescription for young womanhood. The dialogues between a mother and her young adult daughter aim to impart the values of obedience, tradition, and conformity, emphasizing that, quote, woman is the helpmate of man. But as my mother told me, her sister Carol was a rebel. My mother herself, already a young homemaker in the 1950s, proved a better fit with the dutiful young wife in the cookbook my grandmother gave to both daughters. Ultimately, no relic of my aunt is more poignant than her Sweet Sixteen album my mother kept for more than half a century. Pasted in are a cocktail napkin and a matchbox embossed with the letter C. Carol, in a flared taffeta skirt and kitten heels, stands beside her handsome beau with a white carnation in his lapel. She gazes fearlessly towards a future that will have been denied her. I come now to the final one of my characters, Moses Rutenberg, a first-generation Canadian born in 1898 to Lithuanian Jewish immigrants in Montreal. My maternal great-uncle was a source of shame to his family and estranged from them, a taboo. 
The sole evidence of Jockey in my parents' house amounted to a few photos of him kibitzing with young children and several newspaper obituaries hidden in a small leatherite suitcase. Some of you listening may be able to recall Jockey Fleming, who was a fixture of mid-century Montreal. His stomping ground was the corner of Peel and St. Catherine and the old Windsor Hotel. There, he earned his keep as a ticket tout for the hockey playoffs at the Forum and the horse races at Blue Bonnets, as a holder of bets and a purveyor of information in sealed envelopes, a joker and a raconteur. As well, Jockey was sought after as a gag man or stand-up comic for stag parties of the rich and famous. I glimpsed Jockey only once, in my middle childhood, in front of Ogilvy's department store. My mother dragged me across the street, and more than 50 years later, I remember her words. He's not a bad man, but his family are ashamed of him. Looking back, I find it extraordinary that I was so little aware of Jockey when he was much celebrated by journalists of the time. Al Palmer of the Montreal Herald, Dink Carroll of the Montreal Gazette, the sports writer Jim Coleman, and the humorist Don Bell, among others. Much of what circulated about Jockey consisted of legend and hearsay, which only contributed to his celebrity. His Jewish background was rarely mentioned, nor his true name Moses Rutenberg revealed. Since he lived at the margins of the law, he was content to have it so. Decades before the terms fake news and post-truth became current, Jockey was a practitioner of both. I believe that I am the first to be able to consider Jockey in the context of his family and its history. He was not, as rumoured, out of Newark, New Jersey, but rather Montreal-born and bred. In some, then, the smallest objective is a story of immigrants or the children and grandchildren of immigrants overcoming hardship and reinventing themselves in a new land. The particular context, 20th century Montreal and its Jewish community, will be of interest to anyone who loves this city, but the experience of migration and the struggle to find one's bearings continues to resonate more broadly at this time of global displacement. The book is also, in a more narrowly personal sense, an effort to locate oneself historically, emotionally, and psychologically. As the narrator, I am searching for home. In some way, each person looking for their family origins on Ancestry.com is doing the same. A few words now about memoir and memory. So much work has been done on memory in recent years, and we know now how unreliable even our own recollections of ourselves can be. It's probably fair to say that whatever story or associations we extrapolate from objects involves some distortions, even when these objects are our own, dating from earlier periods of our lives. Both memory and storytelling are selective by nature. Memory also isn't fixed. Memory themselves are reconstructed as we go through life. That's why the book is about selective viewing as in peering through a microscope. These are helpful points to keep in mind when reading a memoir or writing one. Some of you listening may be thinking about writing your own memoir. If your curiosity is consuming enough, memoir can be a wonderful way of working through life events, loss, and family history. Be aware, of course, that some aspects may prove uncomfortable or may alter your sense of self. People sometimes worry that they shouldn't embark on a memoir if they themselves or their family members aren't prime ministers or rock stars or Olympic athletes. My view is that no one is ordinary. Find what's distinctive in each individual and include these particulars, as in fiction where so-called ordinary people may be the focus. As well, situating yourself and your characters in the bigger picture of the generations, in political, cultural, economic, and social history can be enriching. This may be especially true during pandemic times, when a larger perspective can be a welcome counterpoint to the troubled present we inhabit. 
Because my book was published mid-pandemic, I found myself in the peculiar situation of promoting a memoir about Montreal to Montrealers from my current home in Toronto. In a way, though, the process of working on my memoir prepared me for this reality of inhabiting Montreal while not being there. In researching and writing the smallest objective, I felt I became once again a full-time resident of the city, albeit in my imagination. It's been a special pleasure and an honor, therefore, to share my account of the smallest objective with you, a group of listeners residing in Montreal, and I'm most grateful to Cote St. Luke Library for this opportunity. Stay safe, everyone, and I hope your days are enlivened and your spirits lifted by good books. Thank you for spending this time with me. Thank you for listening to the Cote St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.